The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Messerschmidt in Ann Arbor, Michigan, USA. Chapter 2, Section A, Subdivision 3, The Hierarchy The historical reflections on our Mongolism, which I propose to insert episodically at this place, are not given with the claim of thoroughness, or even of approved soundness, but solely because it seems to me that they may contribute toward making the rest clear. The history of the world, whose shaping properly belongs altogether to the Caucasian race, seems till now to have run through two Caucasian ages, in the first of which we had to work out and work off our innate negroidity. This was followed in the second by mongoloidity, Chineseness, which must likewise be terribly made an end of. Negroidity represents antiquity the time of dependence on things, on cocks eating, birds flight, on sneezing, on thunder and lightning, on the rustling of sacred trees, and so forth. Mongoloidity, the time of dependence on thoughts, the Christian time. Reserved for the future are the words, I am owner of the world of things, and I am owner of the world of mind. In the Negroid age fall the campaigns of Sesostris and the importance of Egypt and of northern Africa in general. To the Mongoloid age belong the invasions of the Huns and Mongols, up to the Russians. The value of me cannot possibly be rated high so long as the hard diamond of the not-me bears so enormous a price as was the case both with God and with the world. The not-me is still too stony and indomitable to be consumed and absorbed by me. Rather, men only creep about with extraordinary bustle on this immovable entity, on this substance, like parasitic animals on a body from whose juices they draw nourishment, yet without consuming it. It is the bustle of vermin, the assiduity of Mongolians. Among the Chinese, we know, everything remains as it used to be, and nothing essential or substantial suffers a change. All the more actively do they work away at that which remains, which bears the name of the old, ancestors, and the like. Accordingly, in our Mongolian age, all change has been only reformatory or ameliorative, not destructive or consuming and annihilating. The substance, the object, remains. All our assiduity was only the activity of ants and the hopping of fleas, jugglers' tricks on the immovable tightrope of the objective corvée service under the leadership of the unchangeable or eternal. 
The Chinese are doubtless the most positive nation, because totally buried in precepts. But neither has the Christian age come out from the positive, from limited freedom, freedom within certain limits. In the most advanced stage of civilization, this activity earns the name of scientific activity, of working on emotionless presupposition, a hypothesis that is not to be upset. In its first and most unintelligible form, morality shows itself as habit. To act according to the habit and usage, mores, of one's country is to be moral there. Therefore, pure moral action, clear, unadulterated morality, is most straightforwardly practiced in China. They keep to the old habit and usage, and hate each innovation as a crime worthy of death. For innovation is the deadly enemy of habit, of the old, of permanence. In fact, too, it admits of no doubt that through habit man secures himself against the obtrusiveness of things, of the world, and forms a world of his own, in which alone he is and feels at home, builds himself a heaven. Why, heaven has no other meaning than that it is a man's proper home, in which nothing alien regulates and rules him any longer. No influence of the earthly any longer makes him himself alien. In short, in which the dross of the earthly is thrown off, and the combat against the world has found an end, in which, therefore, nothing is any longer denied him. Heaven is the end of abnegation. It is free enjoyment. There, man no longer denies himself anything, because nothing is any longer alien and hostile to him. But now habit is a second nature, which detaches and frees man from his first and original natural condition, in securing him against every casualty of it. The fully elaborated habit of the Chinese has provided for all emergencies, and everything is looked out for. Whatever may come, the Chinaman always knows how he has to behave, and does not need to decide first according to the circumstances. No unforeseen case throws him down from the heaven of his rest. The morally habituated and inured Chinaman is not surprised and taken off his guard. He behaves with equanimity, that is, with equal spirit or temper, toward everything, because his temper, protected by the precaution of his traditional usage, does not lose its balance. Hence, on the ladder of culture or civilization, humanity mounts the first round through habit, and, as it conceives that, in climbing to culture, it is at the same time climbing to heaven, the realm of culture or second nature, it really mounts the first round of the ladder to heaven. If Mongoldom has settled the existence of spiritual beings, if it has created a world of spirits, a heaven, the Caucasians have wrestled for thousands of years with these spiritual beings, to get to the bottom of them. What were they doing then but building on Mongolian ground?
they have not built on sand, but in the air. They have wrestled with Mongolism, stormed the Mongolian heaven. Tian. When will they at last annihilate this heaven? When will they at last become really Caucasians and find themselves? When will the immortality of the soul, which in these latter days thought it was giving itself still more security if it presented itself as an immortality of mind, at last change to the mortality of mind? It was when, in the industrious struggle of the Mongolian race, men had built a heaven, that those of the Caucasian race, since in their Mongolian complexion they have to do with heaven, took upon themselves the opposite task, the task of storming that heaven of custom, heaven-storming activity, to dig under all human ordinance in order to set up a new and better one on the cleared site, to wreck all customs in order to put up new and better customs in their place. Their act is limited to this. But is it thus already purely and really what it aspires to be? And does it reach its final aim? No. In this creation of a better, it is tainted with Mongolism. It storms heaven only to make a heaven again. It overthrows an old power only to legitimate a new power. It only improves. Nevertheless, the point aimed at, often as it may vanish from the eyes at every new attempt, is the real, complete downfall of heaven. Customs. In short, of man secured only against the world of the isolation or inwardness of man. Through the heaven of culture, man seeks to isolate himself from the world, to break its hostile power. But this isolation of heaven must likewise be broken, and the true end of heaven storming is the downfall of heaven, the annihilation of heaven. Improving and reforming is the Mongolism of the Caucasian because thereby he is always getting up again what already existed. To it, a precept, a generality, a heaven. He harbors the most irreconcilable enmity to heaven, and yet builds new heavens daily, piling heaven on heaven. He only crushes one by another. The Jews' heaven destroys the Greeks, the Christians the Jews, the Protestants, the Catholics. If the heaven-storming men of Caucasian blood throw off their Mongolian skin, they will bury the emotional man under the ruins of the monstrous world of emotion, the isolated man under his isolated world, the paradisaical man under his heaven. And heaven is the realm of spirits the realm of freedom of the spirit. The realm of heaven, the realm of spirits and ghosts, has found its right standing in the speculative philosophy. Here it was stated as the realm of thoughts, concepts, and ideas. Heaven is peopled with thoughts and ideas. 
and this realm of spirits is then the true reality. To want to win freedom for the spirit is Mongolism. Freedom of the spirit is Mongolian freedom, freedom of feeling, moral freedom, and so forth. We may find the word morality taken as synonymous with spontaneity, self-determination, but that is not involved in it. Rather has the Caucasian shown himself spontaneous only in spite of his Mongolian morality. The Mongolian heaven, or morals, remained the strong castle, and only by storming incessantly at this castle did the Caucasian show himself moral. If he had not had to do with morals at all any longer, if he had not had therein his undomitable, continual enemy, the relation to morals would cease, and consequently morality would cease. That his spontaneity is still a moral spontaneity, therefore, is just the mongoloidity of it, is a sign that in it he has not arrived at himself. Moral spontaneity corresponds entirely with religious and orthodox philosophy, constitutional monarchy, the Christian state, freedom within certain limits, the limited freedom of the press, or, in a figure, to the hero fettered to a sickbed. Man has not really vanquished shamanism and its spooks, till he possesses the strength to lay aside not only the belief in ghosts or in spirits, but also the belief in the spirit. He who believes in a spook no more assumes the introduction of a higher world than he who believes in the spirit, and both seek behind the sensual world a supersensual one. In short, they produce and believe another world, and this other world, the product of their mind, is a spiritual world, for their senses grasp and know nothing of another, a non-sensual world. Only their spirit lives in it. Going on from this Mongolian belief in the existence of spiritual beings, to the point that the proper being of man, too, is his spirit. And that all care must be directed to this alone, to the welfare of his soul, is not hard. Influence on the spirit, so-called moral influence, is hereby assured. Hence it is manifest that Mongolism represents utter absence of any rights of the sensuous represents non-sensuousness and unnature, and that sin and the consciousness of sin was our Mongolian torment that lasted thousands of years. But who then will dissolve the spirit into its nothing? He who by means of the spirit set forth nature as the null, finite, transitory, he alone can bring down the spirit too to like nullity. I can. Each one among you can who does his will as an absolute I. In a word, the egoist can.
Before the sacred, people lose all sense of power and all confidence. They occupy a powerless and humble attitude toward it. And yet no thing is sacred of itself, but by my declaring it sacred, by my declaration, my judgment, my bending the knee, in short, by my conscience. Sacred is everything which for the egoist is to be unapproachable, not to be touched, outside his power, above him. Sacred, in a word, is every matter of conscience. For this is a matter of conscience to me, means simply, I hold this sacred. For little children, as for animals, nothing sacred exists. Because in order to make room for this conception, one must already have progressed so far in understanding that he can make distinctions like good and bad, warranted and unwarranted. Only at such a level of reflection or intelligence, the proper standpoint of religion, can unnatural, that is, brought into existence by thinking, reverence, sacred dread, step into the place of natural fear. To this sacred dread belongs holding something outside oneself for mightier, greater, better warranted, better. The attitude in which one acknowledges the might of something alien. Not merely feels it, then, but expressly acknowledges it, admits it, yields, surrenders, lets himself be tied, devotion, humility, servility, submission. Here walks the whole ghostly troop of the Christian virtues. Everything toward which you cherish any respect or reverence deserves the name of sacred. You yourself, too, say that you would feel a sacred dread of laying hands on it. And you give this tinge even to the unholy, gallows, crime, etc. You have a horror of touching it. There lies in it something uncanny, that is, unfamiliar or not your own. If something or other did not rank as sacred in a man's mind, why, then all bars would be let down to self-will, to unlimited subjectivity. Fear makes the beginning, and one can make himself fearful to the coarsest man. Already, therefore, a barrier against his insolence. But in fear there always remains the attempt to liberate oneself from what is feared, by guile, deception, tricks, etc. In reverence, on the contrary, it is quite otherwise. Here something is not only feared, but also honored. What is feared has become an inward power which I can no longer get clear of. I honor it and captivated by it and devoted to it, belong to it. By the honor which I pay it, I am completely in its power, and do not even attempt liberation any longer. 
Now I am attached to it with all the strength of faith. I believe. I and what I fear are one. Not I live, but the respected lives in me. Because the spirit, the infinite, does not allow of coming to any end, therefore it is stationary. It fears dying. It cannot let go its dear Jesus. The greatness of finiteness is no longer recognized by its blinded eye. The object of fear, now raised to veneration, may no longer be handled. Reverence is made eternal. The respected is deified. The man is now no longer employed in creating, but in learning, knowing, investigating, occupied with a fixed object, losing himself in its depths without returning to himself. The relation to this object is that of knowing, fathoming, basing, not that of dissolution, abrogation. Man is to be religious. That is settled. Therefore, people busy themselves only with the question how this is to be attained, what is the right meaning of religiousness, etc. Quite otherwise, when one makes the axiom itself doubtful and calls it in question, even though it should go to smash. Morality, too, is such a sacred conception. One must be moral and must look only for the right how, the right way to be so. One dares not go at morality itself with the question whether it is not itself an illusion. It remains exalted above all doubt, unchangeable. And so we go on with the sacred, grade after grade, from the holy to the holiest of holies. End of section.